congregations. And so I'm just so thankful for, for them. <coughs> We're starting today a two-part mini Christmas series. And I'm just going to go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help. And we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 through 43 today. And then in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, and then in John chapter 1. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the privilege of hearing from you. Holy Spirit, I thank you for the still, small voice that you bring to our hearts and to our minds. But I thank you for the clear, clear, accurate, objective word that we have in this book that you have spoken. And we come to this book not to hear, even as Andy said in the passing of the peace, not just to hear a philosophy, of a way of life, but we come to hear from you, the God of the universe. You have not been silent, and you are not silent to your people right now. As for anybody coming in these doors thinking, I wish God would speak to me, the answer to your prayer is about to happen. God is speaking to you. He's going to speak through His Word. And for anybody here whose fire and passion may be waning And they feel like they're just kind of barely making it, day in, day out, just barely making it by. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe fresh power and fire into their heart, into their minds today. Holy Spirit, move powerfully. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sermon title today is Why Christmas? Christmas is coming up next week, next Tuesday, a week and two days from today. And I want to know what the big deal is. What's the big deal about Christmas? Why is it such a big deal? It is about so many things, family, it's about giving and receiving, and there is a grace that is involved in both giving and receiving. It's about good food and enjoying one another, but as we all know in here, we're all Christians, Jesus is the reason for the season, but what really is the big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Well, for that, to be able to understand this year, maybe for the first time or maybe for you, uh, kind of re-understanding the good news of Christmas, we need to hear and think about some bad news. Bad news, after all, comes before good news. We know what good news is because we know what bad news is, and we know what bad news is because we know what good news is. The good and bad are not just statements that we say, the realities in this earth. We see good and bad out there. We know what good is because we see what bad is. We know what bad is because we see what good is. But the, with the gospel of Jesus, with it being good news, there is bad news that come, comes first. Christmas will never be that big of a deal to you unless you understand the human predicament, the problem that faces humanity. Hank preached on this a little bit last week, but if we don't understand how bad the human condition is, the human predicament is, if we don't understand how bad the bad news is, the good news will never be that great. There's a direct relationship for us to understanding how good the good news is by understanding how bad the bad news is. If the bad news of the human condition isn't really that bad, then the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that's kind of cool. And it gives us a reason to get together with family, but it's really not that big of a deal. But if the bad news really is bad, really, really bad, and if in light of that bad news, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he came near and he wasn't repulsed, then that good news must be pretty good. So if we hover over the the, the bad news long enough, if we just kind of hover and look at it and see it and sit in it, the good news kind of rises to the top. This morning, in some ways, for the first part of the sermon, it's going to feel like uh, being, in a, being in the ring with Mike Tyson for a 15-round for a bout, and you are you, and Mike Tyson's Mike Tyson. 
And so we're on the canvas over and over and over again, barely getting up, only to get knocked down again by Mike Tyson. I, now I, I love boxing, and I love uh, even one-punch one knockout videos on YouTube. I don't know. There may be something weird about me. But I love a good knockout where somebody's just knocked out cold or just laying on the ground. I love a good knockout video. In, in boxing, a boring boxing fight is a technical, it's like Floyd May, Mayweather Jr. He's a boring boxer to watch. He's so good, but he's so fast and it's all technical. But a really, really good fight is a fight where a fighter is getting beat up the whole time. But he's a one-punch kind of fighter. Even though he's been beat up for 14 rounds, somehow or another he, he wins the 15th round and he knocks the guy out who's been beating him up for 15 rounds. And if you watch that fight, you remember it. You don't forget it. It's exhilarating. And if you went to sleep before the 15th round, and you hear the next day, did you hear he came back and won the fight? One punch at the end of the fight. You think, my goodness, why did I go to sleep? I missed the best round. So today, in some way, it's going to feel a little bit like that. I want us to feel the weight of sin, so when we hear the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we shake a little bit. A couple years ago, before we built our home on our property, there was these massive piles of wood and dirt, debris, I mean, the size of our house, I mean, just massive, just huge piles, and we had to burn them away, you know, so we were in the middle of it, pulling, you know, pouring motor oil and gasoline and you name it, everything we could to get this thing Lit And these fires would go, and they would just burn and burn and burn. And one fire burned for over a month. It just was sizzling for over a month. And then it went out. There was no smoke, you know. And when there's no smoke, there's no fire, right? When there's smoke, there's fire. When there's no smoke, there's no fire. And that thing sat dormant for a month. And after a month, we looked outside, and I said, is that smoke coming up? And there was smoke coming up from the... One of the big pot. It had been out for a month, burned for a month, and then was out for a month. So this thing was lit like two months ago, and then smoke started after a month of seeing no smoke at all. Smoke started, and then sure enough, there was a fire. A fire happened after being out for a month. <coughs> no smoke, no fire, no signs of life, and smoke began to come out of the out of the pit. And my prayer for this Christmas. This Christmas, in your heart and mine, is that those hot coals that God put in you years ago, maybe they're buried, and maybe you've never felt the gravity of Christmas before, but maybe this year the smoke begins to burn a little bit, and the fire gets exposed, the flames start going, and passion returns, and some excitement about Jesus, who He is, and what He has done for you begins to come back. But to get there, to get there to that point, that's the hope even with this sermon, but to get there is that we feel the weight of our sin and we feel it rightly so that we will get to the joy. After all, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Comfort comes after mourning. So I want to talk to you today about the problem. The problem. In Genesis chapter 1, Verse 3, we find God is so gracious and He creates man in the image of God, male and female. And then God looks at Adam and Eve and He gives them dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and everything that is. This is all yours, Adam and Eve. You have dominion here. Okay, Work it and keep it. This whole earth is yours. Every blade of grass, yours. Every tree in the field, yours. Every mountain, every valley, every, every river that has that beautiful white water and every waterfall, it belongs to you. 
And you can eat of anything, any single tree that bears fruit, any plant that has fruit that comes out of it, you can eat out of it. And here's the only thing that I ask. The only, only restriction you have is don't eat out of this one tree. Off, the, off this one tree, don't eat from that tree. And they were free to make their decisions. They had everything. And they played. And they danced. And they sang. And they enjoyed swimming holes. And they played with the animals. And they had deer that were their friends. And cheetahs that were friends. And they... And cheetahs, again, you know this, I think, about me by now. We've been over this before. Cheetahs are my favorite animal. And so... They got to play with all these, the whole earth, it was theirs, theirs to have dominion over. And there's this one tree. And they just couldn't get their eyes off that one tree. I mean, everything here was just beautiful. God was so gracious. And God just gave them one restriction. Don't, don't eat. Because if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And after this wonderful gift that, they, that God had given them, they begin to think, one another, this, the serpent came and said, does God really, did he really say... And he planted a lie within them, a disbelief in the goodness of God. And even though God had given them everything, this lie from the serpent began to make a little sense. God is holding back on us. Because that tree, it looks delightful to my eyes. And there must be something about that tree that God doesn't want me to have. Because maybe the serpent's right. I will be like God. And God doesn't want me to be like him. And, and you know, it looks good to me. And that, that fruit looks tasty to me. Maybe God's holding back on me. And for a moment, for some reason, that tree was more appealing to them. That fruit was more appealing to them than the most beautiful waterfall in the world. Than the valleys. Than the seas. Than Eden. This beautiful Eden that's there. And that, that stinking tree, there it is. And that fruit, I, I want it. God said I can't have it. I want it. And they took of the fruit and they ate it. They were created good, but they used their freedom badly, wrongly, and they chose themselves and what they wanted over God. And so humanity fell into spiritual death. And therefore, you and I are born into this world not the same way that Adam and Eve were created. They were created innocent and free. And you and I are born in sin and bondage, not created free, because of their action, which would have been your action. We don't grow up in this world free. We grow up in bondage to sin. That's what it means to be born under sin. We need to be set free. We are not born free because of what Adam and Eve did, what you and I. Humanity has made their choice. And not just Adam and Eve. Humanity, you and I, have made our free decision. And it is not God. We will do things our way from our birth forward or our decision along with Adam and Eve in the garden. People still make consequential choices, but their will is bound in sin. The predicament is rather large. People are born into a mess. In Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham and his descendants. So out of this fallen humanity, God doesn't just let humanity get away with rejecting him. He loves them anyways. And he goes to Abram and he says, I, I want you. And I'm calling you, and I'm going to bless you, and through you all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so God picks this man, Abram, and his descendants out of fallen humanity. And then God makes promises to Abram and his descendants to be his God, and they shall be his people. And then in Genesis 15, God makes this covenant between himself and Abram. 
There's a smoking pot and fire, and there's blood of the bull is split. And God Himself walks through, signifying that He is going to fulfill one day both ends of this covenant. But God enters covenant with Genesis, in Genesis 15 with Himself and Abram and His descendants by walking through and committing Himself to Abram and His descendants. God was saying, I will be faithful even though you will not be faithful. God committed Himself to the whole thing. Yet God's people always miss this, and through the Old Testament, they make valiant claims to God. We will obey you. We will follow you. We will devote our entire lives to you. We will follow your law when God's law is given. Humanity's assessment of ourself has always been overrated. We always think we can do so much more without God than we can. We can do this. I'll do it. God, just tell us what to do, and we will do it. And we've been making the same mistake generation after generation, millennia after millennia, believing just because God told us to do something, we think that speaks to our ability. Well, if God told me to do it, I can do it. False. We can't obey God's law. That's the point for us to see our need. It's not that I can rise up and do what God's called me to do. It's there to show us, you need me. You need me. You can't do this. You can't do this. And Israel Vold shows us over and over again that that is the truth. They tried, made valiant claims, and failed. Genesis 17, circumcision is given to Abram and to his family to be a sign, his descendants, an external sign that they are the people of God. And now, we know that this world has sinned. We know that Canaan in the Old Testament, the Canaanites were a wicked, uh, wicked people. We know the Assyrians were wicked. We know the Moabites were wicked. We know that the Egyptians were wicked or the Babylonians were wicked. <coughs> but what about God's people? To Israel belonged adoption, glory, the covenants, the law, true and proper worship, and the promise. And I want us to look at Israel, who had all of this. And if anyone should have gotten life correct, if anyone should have hit a home run, if anybody had been graced apparently enough to get this thing right, it would have been Israel. It would have been Jerusalem. They would have got it right. Now, we know the world, they've messed it up, but if anybody could have got it right, it would have been Israel. If anybody could have lived this life and made themselves right before God, it would have been Israel. But what did they do with the adoption? What did they do with glory and the covenants, the law, worship, and promise? Ezekiel 16. Turn there if you're not there. And I want to read a couple commentators about Ezekiel 16 because there are some pretty provocative things in Ezekiel 16. So I want to make some caveats at the beginning and some qualifications, and then we're going to move through it pretty quickly. One commentator said this, The presence of Ezekiel 16... And the pages of Scripture urges us, at least in some situations, to pull the kid gloves off and present sin in its full ugliness. Fire and brimstone sermons that focus alone on hell and God's wrath may be a serious misrepresentation of the true God, which they are. But also, so also are a continuous diet of polite, tactful sermons that only mention heaven and God's love. Sin is offensive 
and depraved. And people need to hear that side of the Christian message too. Lack of tact in Ezekiel chapter 16. Manner in, 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 in Ezekiel, manner is the, it, that is the lack of tact in this chapter is the point of the chapter. He will not be polite about Israel's history of sin. Instead, he is instructed to expose it in its full ugliness in the most graphic manner possible. Only thus can he get his point across. And Charles Spurgeon, the great Spurgeon, said this about chapter 16 in Ezekiel. A minister can scarcely read it in public. So we're going to take the kid gloves off. And we're going to be adults here for a second. And we're going to read out of Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on that day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. This Jerusalem, talking about Israel in Jerusalem and the founding of Jerusalem after the Canaanites were wiped and God's people went and made home there, Ezekiel called them, and talk to them by God's command to tell them their abominations. What are Israel's abominations? They're going to hear them from the prophet. Well, God through Ezekiel tells them in verse 4 and 4 and 5 that it was like Jerusalem was thrown into a field like they were an unwanted baby. And this was a common practice in Canaan. It's not common today, clearly. But he compares them to an unwanted baby. And unwanted baby girls would often be cast away. The imagery of Jerusalem, it is pretty bleak. From the beginning of this chapter, God is telling them through the prophet, you were unwanted and you were helpless and you were doomed for death. That, that's your origin. Unwanted, helpless, doomed for death. Jerusalem. But, for some reason, found only in God and not in Jerusalem herself, God wanted her. He wanted her. Look at verse 6 and 7. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, Live! I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and you became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. God saw this little baby Jerusalem in the field, bleeding, wallowing in blood, unwanted and helpless. And he spoke to her, live, live. It says twice. And he did not want her because she was unwanted and helpless. That's key. He did not want her because she was unwanted and helpless. Her unwantedness and helplessness did not bring out of God God's desire for her. He wanted her because God is loving and he was motivated by himself, not by the baby. His motive was his own compassion and purity. 
I love this baby. I love this baby. This is mine. Wallowing in blood. You are going to be mine. He said, live. And his voice caused her to live. The baby to live and not die. God's word caused her to grow into a healthy young woman. One more commentator that's, that's helpful for the confusion that this passage may bring. And here's what this commentator said. Differences in perspective because of, there are differences in perspective because of cultural distance. Politeness is not the only thing that holds back our understanding in Ezekiel 16. And here's what he talks about cultural differences. Because of the cultural distance between then and now, we are likely to react to its message in significantly different ways than from Ezekiel's original message. They too would have been shocked by the graphic depiction of Jerusalem's depravity. But other aspects of the picture would have struck them differently from the way it strikes us. For instance, when we read of a passerby picking up an abandoned baby, it elicits no surprise in our minds. Because for us, we'd be like, of course, run to that baby. Save that baby. Like, who would do this? Who would do such a thing? That was not the case in the ancient world. There was no of course about it in those days. If you adopted every abandoned baby, you would soon find that your house was bursting at the seams full of babies. Unfortunately, it was an accepted tragedy. Nor could Ezekiel's audience immediately assume, as we do, that the mysterious stranger had favorable plans for the orphan. Because adopted babies, it wasn't the altruistic nature of those who would adopt babies who were abandoned. They would, uh, they would adopt them for slavery reasons or for, unfortunately, sexual reasons. And so the adoption would be motivated by impure motives. To misuse and not to love, not to care for, not to provide for, but to use for personal gain. And here is this baby in Jerusalem being spoken to in such a way, saying, you, you were wallowing in your blood in a field. Nobody wanted you. And you couldn't do anything about it. And God walked by and have compassion, said, live. And brings her in. And what's God going to do with her? Is he going to misuse her? Is he going to treat her wrongly? Or is he going to care for her and nurture her? What's he going to do with this baby named Jerusalem? Look at verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth. And shod you with, with fine linen, leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adored you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with, with gold and silver and your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced in royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. So what did God do? He adopts this baby. Nourishes this baby till she grows into a woman. And then He marries 
this baby. He covers her nakedness. It's always an image of shame. Covers that. He makes a vow to her. He cleanses her and washed her because nobody had done that before. He lavished blessings upon her. You see, this is the exact opposite of what would have been expected by somebody who would walk along and pick up that baby. Love, compassion, tenderness, nurture, lavishes her with blessings. In verse 13, she becomes exceedingly beautiful and advanced in royalty because of how much she is loved. Have you ever noticed that a woman who is loved well by her husband is lovely? You can tell the effectiveness of a pastor or a minister by the countenance of their wife. Now, if Jordan ever comes running in angry with me someday, just forget that I said that. But But she was lovely because she was loved. She was loved well. And she became beautiful. And the world took notice. Look at Jerusalem. Those streets, the peace in that city. What beauty, what wonder. If all the world could have the wealth of Jerusalem... If we could all look like Jerusalem, if we could all live this way, the glory that's there, the beauty that's there. Oh, God graced her to where she became beautiful. The nations knew about her beauty. God bestowed upon her splendor and honor. Beauty and fame came her way. But here's the problem with beauty and fame and honor. It's not the problem with beauty, fame, and honor. It's the problem with the recipient of beauty, fame, and honor. Because beauty, fame, honor, wealth, blessing, all wonderful good things. But they can be dangerous things. And here's what happens. Jerusalem, the one who had been graced so much by God, they used that grace, they used God's favor, they used it to think much about themselves. And they started to believe their own hype. I am this beautiful. I am to be recognized. I am to be noticed. I am marvelous. I am wonderful. World, take note. Look at me. Look at me. Instead of Jerusalem saying, look at him. He is gracious. Oh, my God is so kind. They started to say, look at me. I'm something. I'm something. I'm someone. She fell in love with her own beauty. Verse 15 says this clearly. 15 to 22. We'll just read it all. It's so poignant and helpful. But you trusted in your beauty. And you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and you played the whore. On them you played the whore. The like that has never been seen or never ever shall be. You also took beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver which I gave to you and made for yourself images of men and played the whore with them. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and incense before them and also my bread that I gave you I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey and you set before them up for a pleasing aroma and so it was declare the Lord and you took your sons and daughters 
whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your own blood. This section and the next is the reason Spurgeon said you can hardly read it in public. The unfaithful bride. Jerusalem began to trust in her own beauty. She bought the hype of herself. She got more enthralled with who she is than who God is. And friends, there's a subtlety. This still happens today. I see it all the time, primarily with women, not all the time, but primarily I see this with this identity and self-worth thing that happens where you'll see people who are so excited about who I am in Christ and their excitement is about the first three words, who I am. And it's like in, in Christ is all these lower caps over here where the excitement is more about me than it is about being in Christ. Who I am? Who am I? Who am I? I'm amazing! Rah, rah, rah! She played the whore. Verse 16, it says, like nobody who had ever come before her, nobody ever since. She took the gifts God gave her and used them to sin and misuse. She even took her own children and gave them over as the Canaanites would do and sacrificed her very children to the fire. Oh, how far. Instead of circumcising and loving them and raising them up and teaching them diligently from the law of God, what did they do? They threw them to the fire and sacrificed them to false gods. Oh, how far she had fallen. She trusted in her beauty. She did not remember in verse 22 that the accusation is there upon her. You did not remember your helplessness, Jerusalem. How has she, she, she forgotten? She had forgotten. You were wallowing in your own blood. You were helpless and I took you in. I loved you. I blessed you. I lavished grace upon you. And you turned it inward. And instead of glorifying me, you glorified yourself. And you did things your own way. <coughs> she was too impressed with herself to remember her origins. She was too impressed with her beauty to see the grace of God. In verse 23 through 29... This is a section to scarcely read. It goes on. After all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself vaulted chambers and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty abomination, offering yourself to any passerby, multiplying your whoring. You also played the whores with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring, to provoke me to anger, behold, there I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you over to the greed of your enemies and the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and you're still not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading of the, Chaldea, of the land of Chaldea and even with this, you were not satisfied. Other lovers 
She wanted affirmation. And other lovers came by and wanted to affirm her beauty. You are this. You are this. You are this. And she welcomed that affirmation, longing for others to talk to her about her beauty, others other than God. She put herself out there and gave herself to any passerby. She gave herself to God's very enemies, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Chaldeans. She was never satisfied with her promiscuity. She behaved so badly that in verse 27, the very Philistines, the, the Philistines, Goliath, the God's enemies, the Philistines looked at the, her, the women of the Philistines looked at the city of Jerusalem and were like, ah, disgusted by the whorings of God's people. This is God's people. This is round 12, round 13 before the knockout blow. Good news is on the way. In verse 30 and 34, you can read that for yourself, but we find that Jerusalem was worse than a prostitute because a prostitute at least it receives remuneration for her services. Jerusalem was doing the opposite of that and paying her lovers to misuse her. This is the grossest imagery possible that could possibly given, be given for Jerusalem. You paid your abusers to abuse you and rejected my love. At least, the at least the prostitute gets paid for her services. You weren't even satisfied. God's bride didn't even receive payment for her services. She was seduced by everybody and gave everybody else payment. She was an unfaithful lover indeed. Okay, here's, here's the arc of the Bible. If anybody was going to get this right, like I said, it would have been Jerusalem. But is this just Jerusalem? The rebellions, the sins against God? Or is it the sinful world that is in the human condition, the same human predicament as well? Romans 3, verse 9 through 20. For the sake of time, I'll let you read that. But here, let me just go down what it says. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. The law has made it as such, that we are all to be held accountable for our actions, our sin. The Bible says that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. Have you ever been understand? Have you ever been frustrated when you're trying to explain something and somebody doesn't understand you? You try to explain it, and it's like the, the words are coming out of my mouth, and you're not understanding. And you just get frustrated. You just, what, just understand what I'm saying, son. Like, understand, understand. And you're thinking about one thing, and it, you know this happens in marriage so often with communication where you just can't understand each other. It's just, how, how did you possibly think that? That that's what I meant? And then I was like, well, you, you dummy, how, did I, how do you possibly think that I meant that? The frustration of not understanding. And God tells humanity, nobody understands. I understand. Nobody understands out here. And yet, what's really frustrating is the people who don't understand who think they do. And that's humanity. They think they understand things and see things rightly. I've got a good grasp on this world and how things work and function and operate. And God said, you don't understand at all. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You know what that means? Nobody seeks for God. That's what it means. There is no God seekers in the world. If anybody appears to be seeking God, it's because God is seeking them. So don't interpret or misinterpret based on what we see. Well, it looks like people are seeking God all over the place. No, they're not. God is seeking people all over the place. 
All have turned aside. They've all become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. In verse 19, the mouth of everybody in the world before God is going to be stopped. Nobody's going to be able to say, God, this is your fault. The mouth of everyone will be stopped by God's good, righteous, and holy law. The whole world will be held accountable by their actions. In verse 20 of Romans chapter 3, no one will be justified by the law. The human condition is as hopeless as it could possibly get. Humanity doesn't even understand or care. Eh. Apathy is a general sentiment of the generation that's living right now. Just, eh. Whatever, if there's a God, whatever. So therefore, what is God going to do with Jerusalem? We're back in, in chapter 16 of Ezekiel. And therefore, there's going to be some things that happen. Therefore, O prostitute, verse 35, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. And here's what he says in verse 37. God says that your shame and nakedness, it's going to be on display. You're going to be naked and exposed for the consequences of your actions. In verse 41, God tells Jerusalem, I'm going to put a stop to this. You won't be able to do this forever. I'm going to put a stop to this. Your behavior will stop and I will stop you. Verse 42, he tells them, I will satisfy my wrath upon you. My wrath's coming for you. And you've earned it. And it will not be satisfied Anywhere else but on you. You have got to experience the punishment. Verse 33, 43, God tells them, You have not remembered the days of your youth. You have forgotten your helpless state from which I saved you. They didn't remember who they were without Yahweh. Verse 43, your deeds are coming back on your head. It says specifically, because you have done, you have not remembered the days of your youth, but you have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord. So, let's paint a picture quickly. The smoke is starting to hopefully come out of the pit. And it starts off as fumes of anger where the smoke begins to burn in the big pile that I talked about before the surface. Those hot coals are there. And it, it should, this kind of stuff, as we consider and think about it, should, should frustrate us a little bit. And humanity, if, if we paint this picture of what humanity, and even some believers, for that matter, of what we believe about us, humanity's own self-assessment, the broad stroke painting would be at least these three things. Here's what humanity thinks about us, about ourselves. Beauty. I am beautiful. We are beautiful. Humanity thinks innocence. We are innocent and deserving of love from God and everybody else. And we are good. Humanity is good. Nobody sees our potential but God. You might not see my potential, but I know God does, and He knows that I'm a beautiful butterfly. This is the picture that humanity makes of ourselves. And when that is the understanding, the humans, humans who don't understand, trying to wave our understanding before God, the question becomes, why wouldn't God love us if I'm beautiful, innocent, and good? Why wouldn't God come for me? 
If that picture, that humanity self-assessment painting, the broad strokes, beautiful, innocent, good, lovely, I'm the butterfly. If that's true, Christmas isn't a big deal at all. It's owed to us. Why wouldn't the Word become flesh and dwell among us if we are those things? He should be appealed. There should be something that's in us that's beautiful that attracts God to us. You know, Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively are about the best-looking couple in Hollywood. You know, Ryan Reynolds, Blake Lively, that couple, they're kind of like an it couple. Really good-looking couple. And, and, and that's kind of what we think we look like before God, is just a really pretty couple. I mean, you remember the Lord of the Rings? Do you remember the orcs in the Lord of the Rings, how ugly orcs are? You remember just, it's like, oh my gosh, an orc, it's just saliva, it's just disgusting. What if this painting that's getting painted, the, 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 bro, the, the paint goes, and this assessment of us that the Bible is giving is, uh, you know, to the Lord in our holiness, we are still image bearers who are created in the image of God, but we look like these orcs. This is beneath so many of us. This orc. Why would God come for that? Punish the orc. The orc deserves it. Punish. Death. Let them die and wallow in their own blood. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Here's what Jesus did. This is what's so wonderful. He came for his bride. But to rescue his bride, he had to come to be the faithful bride. He had to come and obey his heavenly father. He had to come and be faithful in the place of faithless Jerusalem. He had to come and be that faithful lover. He came in your place to live a faithful life. To earn a judgment from God favorable. And he did it not for Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively looking souls. He did it for orcs like us. Why on earth would God do it? Not because of you. He does it because of him. He's lovely. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's beautiful. He's the butterfly. He's all-powerful. He is good. He is right. He is innocent. He is the pursuer of orcs like us. It's you and I that should have been faithful. It's me. I should have been faithful. Even now, we should be the faithful bride. But I find in my heart so often, even now with the Spirit of God within me, that I still play the whore. But I still, there's an appeal to other lovers less wild than God. And my heart's drawn to them. Oh, the, the approval of men. Oh, yes, affirm me. Affirm me. Affirm me. Jesus, the faithful bride, He came to be that faithful bride, to rescue His unfaithful bride. He came to be pure and obey His heavenly Father. Israel was unfaithful. Jesus came to be faithful and saved. Christmas, therefore, is about Jesus. He is lovely, good, and kind. And He came to make orcs His sons and daughters. 
And friends, he's beautifying us. And he's cleaning us up. You've never seen how pretty an orc can be until you know the grace of God. Christmas is really good news. And next week, we get to see more of it. But Christmas this week, this year, that, that fire can begin to burn hot. And those coals can begin to be exposed. And that smoke begin to go. And your heart beat for maybe the first time in a very long time for the glory of Jesus. That is, if this message isn't beneath you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy.